Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. It can be found on page 1004 in your, pew, in your pew Bible. Please stand if you're able. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, Thus, it is, ne- it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds faults with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law, my laws into their hand, into their minds, and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I'll remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. This is God's word. Thank you, Royce. encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we look together at this chapter, Hebrews 8. And let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have confidence when it is open before us that you are speaking. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would therefore give us ears to hear what you have to say. Help us to see you. Help us to trust you, to treasure you, to follow you um, as our hearts are changed by your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The first time that I ever had to deal with toll roads is when our family moved to Chicago back in 2005. Uh, Growing up in Nebraska, we had, there was no such thing as a toll road. You just got to get on the road and drive. Uh, No scrounging for change or anything like that. Uh, But Chicago had toll roads, and so anytime we needed to go to the airport or to try and get downtown, it was this constant panic of looking in the ashtray or wherever to make sure we had enough change to throw into the bucket in order to get onto the road or to get off without getting a ticket. Um, And every time we did this, we did this for four years, did the whole pocket change toll road thing. And every time we would do that, we would see a sign advertising uh, what in Illinois was called the I-Pass. It's the equivalent of our E-Pass here. And I saw that advertisement every time. And I never looked into it. Now, we had our system down. We knew what to do. Uh, it was inconvenient, but we knew how it worked and, and how to get by with it. And so we never just 
never thought further about it until one day, four years later, I finally looked into it. And not only did I discover that the tolls were actually cheaper uh, if you use that than what we had been paying in cash, the convenience was utterly unparalleled. I mean, no longer having to pull off of the road every few miles to find change and throw it into a basket. You could just stay on the interstate while the state silently took less of your money. It was amazing. It was a far better deal than what we had been doing. And I remember kicking myself, why did we wait four years to figure that out? Um, and, I, and I think you know, the answer is twofold. Fear and familiarity. Uh, we were comfortable with the system we had that we'd been living under, and we were afraid that the new system, uh, we were afraid what it would really be like, that it would somehow be worse. It shouldn't be that hard to tell the difference between an okay deal and a better deal. I don't mind throwing a few coins in a basket to be able to use this road. I mean, somebody's got to pay for it, right? That's an okay deal, but it was a far better deal to pay less and to not have to slow down. It shouldn't be that hard to tell the difference. But so often, it's very hard to tell the difference between an okay deal and a better deal. And that was another one of the challenges that was facing the early church that uh, this book of Hebrews was written to through the pressure that they had faced from those who wanted to see them let go of the gospel and go back to Judaism, uh, they were forced to wrestle between the deal that they had received in Christ, this new covenant in His blood, and the deal that Israel had received clear back at Sinai, the old covenant, the law. Which deal was better? They were facing all sorts of pressure that the old deal was the better deal. Now, if you have spent any time in the book of Hebrews, or if you've been with us through our series so far, you will be uh, completely unsurprised to find out which deal the author thinks is better. Jesus is the better deal, hands down. He is a better high priest who mediates a better covenant that brings better promises to bear on God's people. Uh, promises of a renewed heart and a lasting relationship with God that's based not on performance, but on God's mercy. So that's his burden in chapter 8 to help us see and appreciate the superiority of the new covenant that we have in Christ. And not just to appreciate it as in, wow, that's a nice deal. You know, Walmart's running some really good specials right now. And, you know, it's not appreciated in that sense. It is rather to lock ourselves into that deal, to be utterly, fully committed to it, to come to God through it, to base our relationship with God on it, and to live under it, treasuring God daily and following Him with hearts renewed by His grace. Jesus is a better deal. But how do we know that? How do we know that? How could we be sure that the new covenant in Christ really is better when the old one seemed to have worked for so long? Well, to convince us of that, the author picks up right where he left off in chapter 7, uh, continuing his conversation about the superiority of Christ as our better high priest. 
and who represents a better priesthood. So verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Everything I just got done telling you in chapter 7 about the quality and supremacy of Christ, that he is the kind of priest whose office is based on a, on a more ancient and abiding priesthood than Levi, on the, on the priesthood of Melchizedek, this great priest king of Genesis 14, that Jesus is a better priest on that basis, not on the basis of the law or the family line of Aaron. Jesus is a better priest who represents a better priesthood, one whose categories can't be constrained by the law. He breaks the categories of the law of Israel's old covenant, and therefore he is able to continue as priest forever and actually be around long enough to finish the the work of salvation that God is doing in us. He's a better high priest. And so he starts off by saying, what I've been talking about, that's the kind of priest we actually have in Jesus. But not only does this priest break the categories of Israel's old covenant law, he at the very same time mediates a new covenant between God and his people. He's not just throwing away the old, he's fulfilling it and bringing about something new and better, a better deal. And that's what the author shows us in chapter 8, first by comparing the new covenant to the old, and then by showing us how even the old covenant looked forward to the new. But to, to really, I think, understand what he's talking about in this comparison between old and new, we need to take a few minutes and go back to that old covenant and see what it was about. Uh, so again, Hebrews keeps pointing us back into the Old Testament in order to make sense of Jesus, of, of who we have in Christ. So what was that old deal like? Keep your thumb in Hebrews and turn with me back to Exodus chapter 19 so we can take a look at this old covenant and what it was like. Exodus chapter 19, the the scripture will be on the screen behind us as well. Now, if you've been around Westgate for a little bit, you'll remember that we actually went through the whole book of Exodus last year. So some of this might be familiar territory. And Exodus is the story of how a handful of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's descendants went into Egypt as 70 people and came out 400 years later as a great nation and the special covenant people of God. They had gone into Egypt as refugees, seeking shelter from a famine. And as they multiplied in that land, the king of Egypt began to see them as a threat and a burden to be managed and ultimately enslaves them under hard labor and harsh persecution. Until you get to Exodus 3, end of chapter 2, and Israel cries out for help. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord answers by raising up Moses. Moses, through whom God performs these incredible signs and wonders. You think of the ten plagues. uh, You think of the parting of the Red Sea as Israel goes through on dry ground, and then the waters crash down to destroy the armies of Pharaoh. These incredible signs and wonders. And he ultimately leads Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness as they're en route to the land that God promised Abraham, the land of Canaan. And there in the wilderness, God 
made a covenant with Israel. He made a special deal that he would be their God and they would be his people. And we see the introduction to that covenant in Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And there are four things, four observations I think we need to see to help us understand what the old covenant was like. Uh, Things we should notice about this old deal. First, it was founded on grace. The old covenant was founded on grace. It's very common when we think about or talk about the old covenant or the law to assume that Israel's covenant was basically legalistic. Um, In other words, that that Israel's favor before God was based on their works or their obedience to God. And that is just simply not what we see in the book of Exodus. God rescued Israel and made them his people by his grace. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. God didn't come to Israel when they're in the midst of slavery and they're making their bricks and they're being harshly treated and say, hey, here's my law. If you keep these commands, I'll be back and I'll get you out of here. He didn't give them the law first. He rescued them by his grace first, by his mercy and his divine election and in faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, and only after that does he give them his law to keep. And so the covenant was founded on grace. Second, it was fulfilled through obedience. It was founded on grace, but it was fulfilled through obedience. Though you enter that covenant not based on your work or obedience, Israel's work or obedience, to receive the promised inheritance that comes with that covenant did require Israel's obedience. Now, therefore, if you will indeed keep my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Part of the deal that God made with Israel was that they must keep his law. And the essence of that law was expressed in the Ten Commandments, right? That was kind of the the core, the heartbeat, and then that was expounded on and expanded through the Book of the Covenant and the Holiness Code and all through uh, the rest of Exodus through Deuteronomy. And the importance, uh, the essential nature of that obedience gets spelled out later in Deuteronomy 28 where you have this list of blessings that come from Israel's covenant obedience, followed by a list of curses that come from breaking the covenant, from disobeying the Lord. The ultimate curse being uh, removed from the land that he promised to give them. And so, while Israel's covenant was not founded on obedience, it does require obedience to fulfill it and to inherit the promises. Which means that for the nation and the people within the nation, those promises were not guaranteed. 
uh, they could be forfeited through infidelity, through unfaithfulness, like a modern contract today. If you make a deal with the bank that you're going to pay them money and they'll let you drive a car that they actually own, if you break the terms of the deal, you stop making payments on the car, they can take the car from you. You broke the deal. You don't get the promise. That's what Israel's covenant was like. They, they made a covenant with God that could be voided through their rebellion. And that was possible not just for the nation, but even individuals within the nation. So not everyone born into that covenant community would ultimately inherit the promise. So that was the second thing. It's, it's founded on grace. It's fulfilled through obedience. Third, that covenant was designed for a purpose. That covenant was designed for a purpose. There is a reason God gave his people rules. And it wasn't just to make their lives miserable. It was because they had a job, a special vocation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel was saved for a purpose, for a reason, to be representatives of God. And, and so you know, if you think about it, what God had designed for humanity in the beginning, making people in his image, and what Adam and, and Eve had kind of messed up, God was still committed to that plan. And he was going to restore it through this covenant people, Israel, who would be a reflection and representation of his glory and his kingdom. So they had a job. And in order to do their job, they needed to know what God was like, what it looks like to be and live as his covenant people. They needed his law. And that's why obedience was so important. Uh, if they're representing God, but completely living in a way that's contrary to God, that doesn't represent him very well. That ends up depriving him of the glory he deserves. And so it was designed with a purpose. And then the fourth observation. God doesn't just give Israel a law here. He gives Israel himself. And that's the most important part. That, that this covenant, the whole point of it, was about relationship with God. Not just keeping rules, but relating with God I brought you to myself. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. God rescues his people, makes them his special people that he might have relationship with them. And the key uh, expression, the chief expression of that relationship in this old covenant was his presence among them through the tabernacle. So if you remember, as they're coming out of out of Egypt, and that God makes the covenant, and the next thing he does is give them instructions for how to build a special tent through which he might take up residence among them, that God might dwell with his people. He says in, later in chapter 29, they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Why? That I might dwell among them. That's the point of the covenant, relationship the residence of God, I will be your God, you will be my people. That was what the old deal was about. Now, of course, Israel doesn't make it very far before they mess the deal up, right? In fact, they don't even make it a couple months into the wilderness before they break the second commandment and make an idol and worship it as though that's the Lord and so on. And the deal is almost called off before it even starts, um, Moses intercedes for them, though, and God, in his mercy, renews the covenant, and he also makes a concession 
he gives them priests in order to maintain that covenant, even though they are a sinful people. I mean, how else can a holy God take up residence among a sinful people? Uh, They need some way to deal with their sin, and so God gives them the priesthood. Uh, the, the, The tribe of Levi is set apart to kind of serve at the tabernacle, and the sons of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron, are set apart as the priests themselves, whose job is to offer these sacrifices that are going to help atone for Israel's sin. They're going to cleanse the people that a holy God might dwell among them to maintain God's presence with his people. So that's the old deal. It's founded on grace. It's fulfilled through obedience. It's designed to represent God. It's focused on relationship, and it's maintained through a priestly sacrifice. That's not a bad deal. Uh, It worked for centuries, but it's not a perfect deal either. And no one in Israel was able to keep it perfectly. People slipped through all the time. Ultimately, the entire nation uh, got so bad and so unfaithful that they were, in fact, kicked out of the land. So it's not a perfect deal. And in comparison with Christ, it's not a deal worth holding on to any longer. And that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to convince us. If you come back with me now to to Hebrews chapter 8, how is Jesus a better deal? In what way does the new covenant surpass the old? In Hebrews chapter 8, there are two main arguments that the author is going to make to show us how much better the new covenant is than the first. First, the fact that Jesus has better access to God than the priests in the old covenant. And then second, that the new covenant is enacted on better promises than those of the old. So those are the two main arguments. The first one, chapter, uh, verses 1 through 6. So look again at Hebrews 8, verse 1. And as he describes this better priesthood in Jesus, notice what he emphasizes here about this new covenant priesthood, the location of his ministry. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's where Christ executes his priesthood. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Jesus' ministry operates in the heavenly realm, in the very unmediated presence of God in heaven. So he is, in one sense, like the other earthly priests in that he offers sacrifices. He brings an offering, and he's going to elaborate on that offering in the next couple of chapters. But he's unlike these other earthly priests in that his priesthood operates in the heavenly realm, not on the earthly realm. And, and if he tried to operate on the earthly realm according to the law, he'd be disqualified from being a priest because he's not a Levite. So his priesthood is unique, and it's unique because of its location. That's the argument of chapter 8, which means that the priesthood of the Levites in the Old Covenant was ultimately inferior. It wasn't as good. It was, it was okay 
but it wasn't as good as Christ's, not least because of its location. So look at verse 5. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, these earthly priests. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. So the tabernacle instructions, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the covenant and he gets all of these instructions about the tabernacle. He's being given a blueprint based on the real thing in heaven, God's heavenly throne room. And so this tabernacle that he was instructed to to have made, it was meant to be a mirror of God's very throne room. It was the earthly counterpart to the heavenly temple, which was why it was so sacred. Why not just anybody could waltz into there? This was holy ground. God's presence in heaven made itself known in a special way on earth in this tabernacle. But as special and unique and holy as that tent was, and later the temple that replaced it, according to Hebrews, it was but a shadow. It was a shadow. I mean, you think of the difference between a real object and the shadow that it casts. You know, you can kind of get a sense of what that object's like by looking at the shadow, but if you go to touch it, it's not there. It's not the real thing. The, the tent was a shadow. It was a copy. It's like the difference between seeing a picture of the Grand Canyon and visiting the Grand Canyon itself. I mean, you can get a sense of the beauty. You, be, you can begin to imagine the majesty of the Grand Canyon by looking at a, at a photo. But nothing can prepare you for seeing and experiencing the real thing. That, that's, that's a shadow. That's a copy. That's not the real thing. And so Jesus operates his ministry not in the shadow, but in the real thing, in the heavenly temple. And if you've got a priest who's able to go into the real thing, not just the copy or the shadow, isn't his representation of you so much better, so much closer to the Lord? And that's one of the major differences here. Uh, the you know, if you think of the difference between, if you're a business person and you try and make a deal, think of the difference between trying to make a deal through emailing someone back and forth versus sitting down together with them in person. Now, now you can communicate in real ways through email, but it's often delayed, the responses. You can't read body language. You don't know what's going on. You can, you can have actual communication, but it's so much worse than if you sit down in person and negotiate. The the priesthood of ancient Israel could really communicate with God. They had real access to God, but it was distant. It was mediated. They were not in his very presence face to face. Jesus is face to face with his father as our high priest. He's in a better position. He has better access in order to secure our salvation for us. So that's the first Difference and, and it's summarized in verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. He has 
better access to God, therefore a better superior ministry than the priests under the Old Covenant. But as he kind of concludes that first argument in verse 6, he introduces a second argument, that, that Jesus is a better priesthood as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. And, and so that's the second point he makes, how the new covenant is a better deal because it's based on better promises. And that's verses 7 to 13. And, and it's worth noting that this new covenant that he's glorying in and trying to convince us of is not something that the church or the New Testament made up. It's not like you get to the end of the Old Testament and it's like, well, that was kind of a downer. We need something new. Let's come up with a new, new arrangement. No, right within the Old Covenant itself, we are told that this is not the end game, that there's going to be something new and better to come. And that's the point he starts on in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If the old covenant had been able to accomplish everything we need it to do for God's purposes of salvation, then why in the world would the Old Testament have promised multiple times that there is a new covenant coming? Places like Isaiah 54, and Ezekiel 36, and Jeremiah 31, which is what Hebrews quotes here. That old covenant was imperfect all along, and that was no surprise to God. It was designed to be temporary. Uh, it wasn't a design flaw. It's not like, you know, the prototype here, let's try out this covenant, and we're going to field test this for a few centuries on Israel, see if it works. Okay, we need to tweak some things. Here's, here's covenant 2.0. No, it was designed to be temporary. It was designed to point forward to a new and better thing. It did exactly what it was meant to do. That old covenant revealed God's will, it exposed our sin, and it pointed us forward to Christ. That was its purpose. And and it was meant to be fulfilled by Christ. And so the author says in verse 8, for he, that is God, finds fault with them when he says, Behold, and here he quotes Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The old covenant was meant to give way to the new. And it's here in quoting Jeremiah 31 that we find out what exactly these better promises are. So he says the new covenant's better because it's enacted on better promises. What promises? Well, we see them right here in Jeremiah 31, and we see three of them, to be precise. First, there is the promise of a renewed heart. A renewed heart. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Where was the law written in the Old Covenant? On tablets of stone that stood outside and ultimately testified against the people of God. No longer is God's law going to work that way. Instead, through Christ, God gives us a new heart and a new mind and writes His law within it. So that His law is not some foreign 
barrier or burden that we're unable to carry, but rather it is an internal compass that we joyfully obey by the power of the Spirit. Look at Ezekiel 36 and Romans 7 and 8 and Galatians 5, other passages that talk about that. Now, that does not mean, however, that with the law written on our hearts, it does not mean that we'll never therefore sin. Uh, Sin is still possible under the new covenant. It does mean that for the Christian, sin is a burden we fight against rather than a joy that we nurse and cultivate. It always, we're going to make mistakes, but it's always going to come with conviction. And it's always going to come with the Spirit of God directing us to do differently next time. It's going to come with the community of faith who shares that law on their heart, calling us out and helping us move forward. It means that as we grow in Christ, sin gets less and less of a foothold because the spirit that was, is within us is fighting against that residue of flesh. The spirit takes the word and applies it to our hearts as we put to death the sin that remains. You think of 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. We think of rules as burdensome, but when the Spirit of God writes the law of God on renewed hearts, those commands are not a burden. They're the way we show our love for God. We love God by following God. The new covenant promises a renewed heart. Second, it promises a lasting relationship with God. So a renewed heart and a lasting relationship. The first covenant was all about relationship, right? But that relationship had a thin guarantee because it was based on the obedience of the people. This is a promise of a lasting relationship. Middle of verse 10, he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. You know, you think in the old covenant, not everybody in Israel actually knew the Lord. And so they had to kind of tell one another, you need to know the Lord. You don't have to say that in the new covenant because everyone who genuinely belongs to the new covenant in Christ shall know the Lord from the least to the greatest. No more will God's covenant people fail to finish and receive the promises. This covenant isn't like the old one where where God took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt where they didn't continue in his covenant. Rather, in Christ, all who belong to the covenant in Christ will know God. All of them. And all will receive the promise. Because, and this is the important point, because receiving the promises is no longer based on our obedience. It's based on Christ's obedience for us. So it's not that obedience no longer matters or that the covenant isn't fulfilled through obedience. It's that the obedience it's fulfilled through was Christ's obedience. So therefore, if you were united with Christ, your inheritance is secure. We sang earlier the the end of, I forget which song it was, um, uh, 
a debtor to mercy alone. That last few lines of that song, uh, the saints are happier in heaven. Those who are, who've gone before us, they're happy, but not more secure. We are just as secure in our inheritance in Christ as those who are already in his presence because it's not based on our obedience. It's based on Christ's obedience in our place. We have a better promise of a lasting relationship with God. Means we don't have to freak out every time we approach God scrounging for change, hoping there's enough in the ashtray because we've already been given an easy pass paid for in full in advance by the Lord. It's not our obedience that matters. It's Christ's obedience and our union with Christ through faith. And that brings us to the third uh, point here, the better promise that this relationship is based on mercy, not performance. Verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Again, you know, the old covenant being fulfilled by obedience, the new covenant, because Christ has given that obedience, is fulfilled for us through mercy, through mercy and grace. Not because obedience doesn't matter, but because Christ obeyed and more than fulfilling the covenant in our place, he took the covenant curses on himself. You know, if you had time this afternoon to go back to Deuteronomy 28 and you read all of those blessings and all of those curses, all of those curses, what Christ experienced on the cross was the full weight of all God's covenant curses against his people for failing the covenant. He was faithful. He didn't deserve it. But he, he fulfilled it for us and then took the punishment in our place. That's what he did in order to give a new covenant that we could enter into through His blood and His grace. Hebrews 9.15 summarizes, Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It's not just that we fail. It's not just that we're imperfect in in and our inability to keep the law, the punishment we deserve for failing to keep the law, Jesus takes care of all of that. The new covenant is based on a better promise of mercy. Now, it's easy to think that since it's based on mercy and not obedience, that's a free ticket to live however I want. That's, that's the conclusion some will often make, that when you talk about grace, that, that our relationship with God isn't based on obedience or performance, but on grace, therefore it no longer matters how I live. That, you're not going to find that in the Bible. You're not going to find that in Hebrews. Um, the New Testament uses the same language as Exodus to describe the purpose for which we are saved. We are now that holy nation, that royal priesthood. Obedience matters. It matters not as the basis for our salvation, but as the fruit and goal of our salvation, that we would represent God. And so obedience still matters, just not as a basis. And because of all of that, these better promises, this new covenant that is so much superior to the old deal, 
that means there's absolutely no reason to go back to that old deal. Why would I, if my easy pass is paid in full and in advance, continue to worry about and scrounge for change every time I get in the car to get on the freeway? There's, just, there's no logical reason for that. We have a better deal in Jesus. And, and so there's no reason to go back to the first covenant, which is what the persecutors of this church were trying to get them to do, nor to leave it behind, to leave the new deal behind for some supposedly better deal or cheap alternative. Nor, and this is just as important, nor is there any reason to remain uncommitted. You know, when you're shopping for something, sometimes you can... You can uh, be hesitant to actually make the purchase because now you're locked in. You're stuck with that. And what if I find a better deal next week? What if there's another sale coming on? And so we hold out and we don't, we don't lock ourselves in. There can be a temptation to, to kind of hover around the edges of Jesus but not actually sign the line or, or, or commit ourselves to that covenant and guarantee because we think, well, what if we find a better deal down the road? Friends, There is no better deal. There is no better deal than Christ. There is no better Savior than Christ. And for those of us who have taken hold of that deal, we need to live as though it's true. Sometimes we can believe it, agree with all the right doctrine, and yet functionally live as though the old covenant's still in place. Uh, We live as though... Our security before God is based on our performance rather than Christ's. Or to interact with God through our performance as though we're removed from Him by a great distance and we're either trying to make it up to Him or or somehow impress Him or pretend like we're not as bad as we really are. That's really easy to do. Rather than living with the confidence and joy and spirit-fueled obedience that comes from the new covenant in Christ. And the Apostle Paul has a word for us, for those of us who are tempted to live that way, like agree with the new deal, but live as though we're still under the old. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. And believe what he says here. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The deal is certain. It's certain, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We have a better deal in Jesus. As a better priest, he mediates a better covenant that brings better promises to bear on God's people, promises of a renewed heart and of a lasting relationship that's based not on performance, but on grace. And so we need to leave that old covenant behind once and for all. To stop rummaging for coins. We need to 
move out of the shadow and rest in the reality of Christ in both our faith and our practice. Because after all, as the author concludes in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. Don't hold on to what's already vanishing. Hold on to Christ. He will never let you go. Let's pray. Lord, give us faith to believe what your word says. Lord, thank you that in Christ we have such a better covenant that we, we couldn't even imagine if we were to come up with what this relationship with God might look like. We would have never uh, been so bold as to draw it like this. But Lord, that is your love and your mercy for us. That is your faithfulness to your purposes, to your glory. So Lord, may we rest in the reality, may we move out of the shadow, out of the pretend arrangement that, that we have some sort of sway on your acceptance of us, Lord. May we cling instead only and completely to Christ. And may we enjoy Christ in our love for you and in following you as faithful members of this new covenant confident that Christ is enough. Lord, may it be true of each of our hearts here today. May it be true of this congregation. May it be true of your people in New England, Lord, that we would rejoice in our great Savior Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.